Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, during Lent this year, uh, instead of uh, talking about giving something up or putting some vice away or off, we have been talking actually about putting things on. We have been talking about the Christian virtues, which are those good moral habits that aim people like us towards love. Uh, the Christian virtues, when they're put on, when they're practiced over and over again in the light of God's grace to us in Jesus, they form us into people who love, love God and love our neighbors well. The virtues are a normal and needed part of growing up as Christian people. As uh, the Apostle Paul put it to his friends, these young Christians at the church in Ephesus, put on the new self created after the likeness of God. So this morning, we're going to talk together uh, about the virtue of self-control. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, 924 through 1013. You can follow along where it's printed in the order of worship or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now the thing that we always ask and that is that you would meet us in this word that we have read and heard together, that we're going to talk about together that you would meet us in exactly the places where we find ourselves and that we'd have the courage to admit that we are like those people we read about who are just wandering around aimlessly sometimes. Hearts that wander and we're lashing out at the air, 
to no good end. Meet people like us. Show us how much you love us in Jesus and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, uh, shortly after my wife Allison and I got married, I bought us a uh, food processor. Um, I wanted to save a little bit of money on this food processor, so I went to eBay to look for it. And I found this dealer that was selling a remanufactured food processor at what I thought was a pretty good price. So I bid on it and won it, and uh, it came to the house. And when it came to the house, I opened up the box and I pulled it out, and I noticed that the name brand had been scratched off of the front of the unit. This seemed a little bit sketchy to me. I have no idea what that was about, but the thing, you know, it worked well um, right from the start. Like uh, every other food processor, I guess, it had a, a safety mechanism on it so that it wouldn't work unless all of the working parts were put together in the right order, right? The bowl had to be seated on the base in just the right way. The blade had to go inside the bowl in just the right way. And if those two things weren't just right, if they weren't perfect, the lid would not go on. And if the lid would not go on, the power would not go to the on switch. So all of that, I guess, is a helpful feature for avoiding food splattered all over the kitchen or for losing fingers and stuff like that. But over time, this sketchy remanufactured food processor got a little, little bit trickier to use. The parts started to wear out. Some of the pieces that were plastic and small snapped off, and getting things in the proper order got harder for us to do. It became more difficult. We had to pay more attention to the way things went together, more thoughtfully, more slowly, more deliberately. And then we kind of hold our breath when we hit the on switch. But if we did that, it never failed. If you got things in the proper order, it always worked, and you always got what you were aiming for. It was not easy, but it was worth the effort. And church, that is what self-control is. <laughs> it's getting things in the proper order so that you can reach the thing that you're aiming for. In particular, the Christian virtue of self-control is rightly ordering our desires, rightly ordering our loves, rightly ordering our affections, so that we can get at the thing that we're supposed to be aiming for. We'll talk about what that is later, but for now, it is good for us to hear self-control is rightly ordered desire. It is rightly ordered love. And this is something I think is just true about being a human being. And when I say a human being, I don't just mean a human being who believes in Jesus. I mean any human being. I think this is true for every one of us in here, no matter where we're coming from, we don't flourish. Humans can't flourish. Humans do not live the way we were made to live unless our desires are in the right order and we're headed in the right direction. And so I think it's good for us to be honest for a minute, starting with me, starting with the preacher, that we know what Paul was talking about in that passage that we just read together, because every one of us in here, at some point or another in our lives, gets to the end of the day, and we ask ourselves, why did I do that again, right? Why did I say that thing again? Why did I interact with that person again when I told myself that I wasn't going to do it? 
Right? We get to the end of our days and we think back and we have stuff that we wonder about, stuff that we're ashamed about, stuff that we regret, stuff that we did that doesn't even make sense to us. Stuff we hope no one ever finds out about. And church, that's just the definition of running aimlessly. <laughs> that's the definition of beating the air with all our desires out of whack, leading us nowhere good. So the good news is that Paul is talking to people like you and me in this passage we just read together. And what he says to us is incredibly helpful and incredibly hopeful for people like us. So Paul talks about running. He talks about boxing. And when he does that, he is tapping into something that his friends at that church at Corinth would have known a lot about. Um, athletics were huge in the Greek-speaking world. Corinth itself had been the site of the Isthmian Games, which was this Olympic-like contest that drew athletes from all over into Corinth. Um, they had the same sort of cultural obsession with sports that we do, and like us, they knew the difference in Corinth between normal people and casual athletes and elite athletes. And that's the kind of athlete that Paul's talking about when he says, run that you may obtain the prize. He says, these athletes exercise self-control in all things. And of course, Paul isn't talking about just during the race. I'm sure there are things you have to do to exhibit self-control during a race. But just as importantly, and maybe more importantly, he's thinking about everything these runners had to do in the months leading up to that race, the hundreds of choices that they had to make every single day in order to win the prize. And that's what they wanted. They wanted to win the prize. That's what they were aiming for. So they didn't just say no to a bunch of things. They had to say yes to a bunch of things, too. And I think this is really, really important for us to think about, especially if we are new to the faith or we're maybe coming back to the faith after a time away or we're thinking about being, becoming Christians. I think this is important for old-timers, too, and that's this, that we tend to think of self-control in primarily negative terms, restrictive terms. Don't do this. Don't do that. And I just want to say that when we do that, we're in danger of reducing our faith to something that it is not. We are making our faith into a list of rules or a code of ethics, and that is not Christian faith. That's not the good news that Jesus came to tell us about. Yes, Jesus, of course, talked about self-denial. One of his most famous teachings is to say to the people, deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. But check it out. When he teaches that, you'll see that it's always true. He says that teaching on self-denial in the context of something beautiful and better. Whoever loses their life for my sake, whoever loses their life for the gospel's sake, Jesus says, will actually save it. You'll actually get it. Jesus is telling us, of course, that following him means leaving one old way of living and being, but it also means entering into a new way of living and being. And that new way of living and being contains a whole host of beautiful, gorgeous things to be able to say yes to. And the paradox that is at the heart of Jesus' teaching is that when we deny ourselves and follow him, we actually get our lives back. 
we are finally living when we follow him the way that we were made to live. Because when our desires are rightly ordered, we're finally free. And we can say yes to things that maybe for the first time in our lives give us life. So, of course, the punchline for Paul when he's talking about this elite athlete running for the prize, he says they they do it to receive a perishable wreath. You've seen pictures of the perishable wreath, probably in elementary school in some textbook, that garland of withered vegetables they set on top of the runner's head, which is nice for a couple days, I guess. But Paul's point is to say, like Jesus' point was to say, we are running for something way better than that. We are running for something that is imperishable. What is that thing? What is that prize that is imperishable? We'll we'll get to that in a bit, because Paul gets to it in a bit. But first, he takes this really circuitous, winding, strange, beautiful route to get there. In verse 11 of chapter 10, we can see where he's headed, because he says, These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Here's what that means. It means that Paul is about to tell his friends a story. It's a story, Paul says, that's reached its climax. And now we, meaning that church, meaning us, we are living in the resolution of that long and beautiful story. He tells them a story, and it might sound a little confusing. Maybe it did sound a little bit confusing when we read it together. I'm sure it sounded confusing to his friends at Corinth. But this is the story that he tells. He he tells his friends that their fathers were all under the cloud and all of them passed through the sea and all of them were baptized into Moses. He tells them their mothers, their fathers ate the same spiritual food that they eat. They they drink the same spiritual food that they drank because they drink from the spiritual rock, the rock that followed them, the rock that was Christ. Now that... That sounds strange. It's hard to get in our ears. It's, it sounds maybe a little foreign to us. But here's what Paul's done. He's, he's woven together a lot of different images from Scripture, from the Old Testament. Some of it, of course, would have been fairly obvious, as it might be to us. The Corinthians had a meal that they shared when they got together. Like we have a meal that we share when we get together. It's that meal that Jesus gave us on the night that he was betrayed. But what might be confusing to them and maybe confusing to us is Paul's insistence that ancient Israelites who seemed so far away from Corinth, who seemed so far away from us in a million different ways, that those ancient Israelites are actually our fathers. They are actually our mothers in the faith. They're our parents. That's what the other set of images is about, about passing through the sea, about drinking from a rock, about being baptized into Moses. Because here's what Paul's doing. He is weaving the story of the exodus from slavery in Egypt into the story of the church. He's putting them together. Passing through the waters of the Red Sea, Paul is saying it's like baptism. And the manna that our our mothers and fathers ate in the wilderness is like this meal that we eat when we get together. The story of ancient Israel is actually just the Corinthian story. And it's our story too. 
There's just one story, Paul's saying, and it's the true story of the world, and it's been going on for a long time, and now it's reached its, its climax, and we are living in the resolution of it. It's so full, it's so beautiful, because we're the ones, Paul says, on whom the end of the ages has come. And this is what he means. The, the story of the exodus from slavery, the story of wandering around in the wilderness... It is a perfectly suited story to talk about rightly ordering our own desires. He tells the church this story, their story, with that warning attached, take heed. And if you know the story of the Exodus, you you might know where Paul's going with this. God's people had been delivered from slavery, 400 years of it. They get out. It's this incredible, spectacular deliverance. They can almost see the land of promise that they're going to settle into. And then things start going off the rails fast. As Paul puts it, God's people started ordering their desires the wrong way. They desired evil. And it took the form of idolatry. That disordered desire led them into idolatry. Some of it literal idolatry. Right? Paul alludes to Aaron making the golden calf and the people worshiping it and all of that weird sexual immorality that was attached to pagan idol worship. They did that. But in other cases, there was something more subtle, something not literal, not literal bowing down to idols, but something more subtle happening. Paul talks about how some of God's people, some of our fathers, some of our mothers, started grumbling pining for this illusion of safety and this illusion of comfort that they thought they would have if they could get back to Egypt, if they could get back to slavery. Paul says some of our fathers, some of our mothers, they put God to the test. They wondered in all kinds of ways if they thought, if they wondered if he was really as good as he said he was. And they put him to the test and challenged him again and again. Do you really love us like you say you love us? Right? They, they started running after other things, cheap facsimiles of the real promises. Now, we might not think of those things as idolatry, but I think there are actually classic versions of it. Because this is what disordered, out-of-control desires always do to people like us. These desires lead us to try and to get what we really need, to try to get what we've actually been made for from things that can never, ever really give it to us. Right? I want to feel intimacy and I want to feel closeness because I've been made for it. But I'll run to whoever or whatever can easily and quickly give me that feeling of intimacy and closeness regardless of what the consequences are. Right? I want to, I want to feel comfort. I want to be free from my anxiety. So I'll run to whatever old habits or I'll abuse whatever substances I can abuse that will give me that feeling of comfort, regardless of the consequences. Whatever can give me forgetfulness 
That stuff might jeopardize my family. It might ruin every relationship I'm in. But I'll think about that stuff later. Right? My life feels out of control. People aren't doing the things that I want them to do, that I need them to do. So I'm going to use my anger to manipulate them. I'm going to use shame to get people to do what I want, to make the world I want to live in instead of the world that I really live in. I mean, we can call this kind of stuff anything we want to call it. If you don't want to call it idolatry, that's fine. But the end result of out of whack, disordered desires is always the same. They do not make us free. They make us slaves. Slaves to things that can never deliver what it is that we really need. They they can never deliver what we have been made for. And when we follow them, that leaves us like our mothers and fathers out wandering aimlessly in the wilderness. I mean, just think about that metaphor. It's so powerful. Just wandering around. Not near anything that I love. Not near anything that I really want, that I really need. Right? Nursing aches and pains and broken hearts and brains full of regrets. Just lost. This is Paul's point. (laughs) And that's why he says to the church, take heed. If you think you're standing, take heed lest you fall. Because he's saying, listen, the story of our mothers, the story of our fathers, it's our story and we need to learn from it. Because in doing that, in learning from that story, we will also be reminded of what that imperishable prize is, the thing that we're actually moving towards, the thing that actually is the thing we should be headed to, and that is new creation. When we are fully and completely restored and made into the women and men we were created to be, when this whole world is reconciled to God and restored to the beauty and peace of original creation, that's that's the imperishable prize. That's the thing that we are headed to, where Jesus... Jesus makes everything new again, where we are not lost, we're found. Where we're not wandering around, we're home. Lovers of God, lovers of neighbor, the humans that we were created to be, free people. And that's the story that we enter into, Paul says, through our baptism, where the sign of water reminds us that we can be washed and made new by the blood of Jesus. We remember that story every single time we participate in this meal together, where the signs of bread and wine teach us again that Jesus' cross and resurrection are the true bread from heaven that gives life to the world just like that bread that our fathers and mothers ate. Paul doesn't mention these two things by accident. He doesn't bring up baptism and the Lord's Supper by accident because these are two things that the church was told to do by Jesus until the day that he came to make everything new again. They are habits that aim our love in the right direction to the forgiving and renewing grace of Jesus for people like us. So church, if you don't hear anything else, please just hear this. Jesus' grace 
That is the thing around which the church is called to order her desires. The grace that is offered to us in the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, it is at the center of our common life. It is at the center of our worship because Jesus is the object of our deepest, truest love. It is the love that brings us home after finding us in the wilderness. And it is his love around which we order our desires. And here's what happens, okay? When people like us make that our primary love, when we order our desires around Jesus' love for us, more and more of the hundreds of choices that we face every day start coming into clearer focus. It helps us start to say no to a whole host of things that leave us out, lost, aimless, wandering around. And yes, to a whole raft of beautiful things that will allow us to be part of making God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And when we walk like this, the Spirit begins to work self-control in us from the inside out. We're free free to be the people that we were made to be. And you know, I think this applies equally to choices that might seem everyday and mundane to us just as much as it applies to the choices that seem really big and significant. This informs questions like, should I eat this whole bag of chips? Should I drink all of this wine? Just as much as it applies to, should I take this job that will make me a ton of money but take me away from family and friends? Right? When we're faced with stuff like this, we have to ask ourselves the question, what should be my primary desire? What love takes priority here? And what love will order all my other loves? It doesn't happen automatically for most of us. It takes work and effort and time to get things in the right order. But part of growing up in the Christian life is asking those questions and then allowing the desire to run towards the imperishable prize of a heart and a world made new to inform them. And that is the virtue of self-control. And you know where Paul ends? (laughs) He ends where he's always going to end. With a reminder that God's people are not alone. And the reminder that God is faithful even when we feel like running aimlessly, even when we really feel like punching the air like clowns. And that's every day. (laughs) Every day. When we're tempted to wander away, Paul says God is going to give you a way of escape so that you can endure in this race. And church, this is what God does. He specializes in the gracious deliverance of wandering out of whack hearts. He delivers even when it costs him everything. Just look at this table and you know it's true. This is how much he loves us. Let me pray for us. Father, give us the eye of faith to see and to believe that this is how much you love us. 
Father, give us everything that we need as a people to order all of our loves around your love for us in Jesus. That we would become people who love precisely because we have been loved. Father, work this in us by your spirit for our good and for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.